It's just amazing how he did this stuff. You know, I mean, it's like you don't come to Mike Appel if you know if you don't have like hit songs. You know, you you know, and and whether he didn't know whether he had hit songs or not by what he was doing, I certainly did. I knew they weren't hit songs, but I was blown right out the door. I said, this is just straight art, Mike. You either gonna carry this guy and see where it takes you, or you have to tell him, hey, listen, you're gonna have to be more, uh, you're gonna have to bridge where you are now to somewhere over here, you know? Closer to early Neil Diamond or something like that, solitary man, something like that, to, to be able to have the hits as well as have the art. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. If there is a founding father in the <laughs> East Street Nation, I am talking to one, I am talking to a Benjamin Franklin, a John Hancock, a Thomas Jefferson. I am talking to the great Mike Appel this evening. Mike, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, unbelievable introduction. How will I ever live up to it? <laughs> well, I think you That's have. the question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just thank you so much. We've already spent a few minutes talking and you've uh, uh, you've already shared a lot of your stuff. So I do want to start out with uh, Louise Poynton does a, an amazing David Cassidy podcast, and she is the one who connected us. You were her guest, and uh, I I urge my listeners to go back and find that episode of her podcast because um, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But I thought you were so real and shared so much emotion about your relationship with David Cassidy and those early Partridge records. Well, you know, you know, it's been so funny. I mean, everything seems to wane over time. Um, my memory, mm -hmm. um, also, uh, you know, things that, that I've forgotten, that I looked up even recently and yeah. stumbled across things that I had long forgotten about. One of the things I've forgotten, and I always assume that, that the material for the uh, uh, Partridge family was trite, and was, you know, geared to a, to a younger audience, you know, the young little girls, um, the blessed little young girls. And I uh, went back and I started listening to the songs. And I was absolutely stunned at the, at the level of the musicality and, 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 and the musical, musicality of them. Um, not so much... Not so much the lyrics. The lyrics were what I call, um, you know, serviceable. Right. But the right. but but the but the music itself was far superior than I had ever given it credit for. Uh, other than you know, doesn't somebody want to be wanted? Which I actually 
dislike the most out of all my of those songs, even though it was the biggest hit. Okay. Um, uh, the other songs stand up, you mm-hmm. know, Umbrella Man, you know, Rainmaker, you know, can't you can't you hear, hear your heartbeat? I can't can I can't hear your heartbeat, etc. Yeah. etc. Those those songs were way better than I thought they were. And when people would would run into me and say, "Oh wow, yeah, the guy with David Cassidy. Oh, I love David Cassidy." I would say, I would say to myself. What about Bruce Springsteen? Did you ever hear him? <laughs> you know, I was like, what? You know, it was like, so, you know, and then of course I get, you know, you get guys that are what I call real archivists and things like, you know, in, in, in matters like this, where they'll bump into me somewhere and they'll say to me, oh, I love what you did with Sir Lord Baltimore. What a great act. You know, the first time anybody ever heard the words, you know, heavy metal was because of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they were the godfathers of Stone Rock, all which was, a, you know, <laughs> news to me. Yeah. Um, but but as I go back and look over the history and, you know, what happened with their their legacy. And then, of course, when I listen to it, I listen to the new uh, recording they did of the first album when, uh, you know, Universal put it out. They were originally on Mercury, which was a Universal uh, subsidiary. Um, I was very, very, very surprised at how heavy and how raucous and how rough and wild they were and how incredibly brilliant they were as musicians. I mean, they couldn't write their lyrics uh, to save their lives. They had no idea about concepts. They had no way to, uh, you know, you know, they just were not intellectually like the heavy metal acts from England, but boy, could they, they could cut it with them musically, any one of them. There was nobody who was better than those three guys. I mean, they were, they took me on a, on a trip every time I went down to their mother's basement and I worked with them there because we re- rehearsed them like hell because we had to organize all those riffs and all that craziness into some kind of a song format. Don't have to be like, you know, Neil Diamond's Song Song Blue and Sweet Caroline, not quite like that. But, you know, just some things have to be repeated. Some things have to build upon something else sure. and, it has to, and it has to sound natural and it has to be new and fresh too. It has mm-hmm. to be like, you know, where I can't point to it. In fact, when they first auditioned for me, I thought that the, some of the songs might've been cops from Jimmy Page. Oh, and the, and the, and the league guitar player was insulted when I, when I, when I asked him about that, <laughs> these, are, uh-huh. these, are all, these are all my wrists. These are all my wrists. Uh-huh. And they were, and they were indeed, but they, they were, um, I mean, they were like, uh, what should I say? I'll give you just one small example. Of Please what I mean do. By, by, being, by being sort of on a level that I never reached as a music, musician um, and guitar player. And I was pretty good back in the day, not bad. Um, not as good as the peaceful people I'm talking about right now. But one day we were doing a, a, one of these uh, cuts uh, of Sarah Lord in the studio. And we kept on hearing a noise. And we kept saying, what the hell is that noise? And I went out into the studio and I'm, and I said, all right, run the track. And so they run the track. And then Louis, Louis Dambrit starts to play the guitar. And, and I'm listening and listening, putting my ear to the amplifier. I'm going around the room, listening to other amplifiers that might be making noises. Nothing, nothing, nothing. No, don't know what's going on. I go back inside the control and I say, listen, I can't find a damn thing. He said, well, look, he says, it's got to be, you hear it, don't you? I said, yes, I do. I said, but I, I really don't know what to do. Go outside one more time. This is it. And I stand right next to Louie. He goes into the solo and he rocks his head back and he starts to go, uh, 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 
while he's playing this fantastic solo, that's what he does. I never heard it before in my life on all of his sessions until this one night where he's doing this. And I said, stop, 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 stop everything. I said, Louis is making the song, the sound with his voice, with his vocal. He's just making these guttural tones because of the way he plays and where he finds that, uh, you know, not excitement, but, but that, 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 that brilliance, that magic, that musical magic. He's, this is how he gets to that spot and how he takes it from that other, the other side somehow and comes back to here and, and then we can all hear it. I said, that's what he's doing. So we have to like, you know, put these gobos in front of it and dampen the, you know, the microphone from the amplifier. So, so that we don't pick up Louie singing. <laughs> I love that. That is and so that's great. How we got around it, but that's, that was like, you know, special. And only a few times in my life have I reached it myself in my own recordings, you know, um, where you reach a magical point where you realize, hey, I, I, I don't think I did this song in this production by myself. Mm-hmm. I think that there's some other thing here that's working with me. I, when I came to the studio tonight, I only like sort of knew this much about it. And now I go home with all this. How the hell did I, what happened between how I got to the studio, when I got to the studio and when I left to go home, man, that's an odd coincidence. I mean, I'm, I'm not used to like, you know, having that kind of otherworldly help for lack of better terminology. And, uh, I've had that a number of times in my life. And if there's anything, uh, you know, I'm in it for these days, it's to get back to those moments to know that I'm in a moment uh, uh, that's not really of this earth. It's from someplace else. And it's, I'm still in the earth realm, but it's somewhere else. And I somehow can bridge it by desire or or goodwill or, or, or whatever it is. I somehow get there and can do it. And uh, looking to get back into the studio to do to get some of that going again. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear about that, right? Like Bruce calls it one plus one equals three. There's just mm-hmm. something magical about that. Yep. Oh, he did it. He yeah. Hit the, he, hit the, he hit those spots, especially in Born. Well, he hit, hit him in a, in a number of spots. But uh, even on some of his demos, he hit it. And I was like, Jesus. Well, I mean, the night he came in and did visitation at Fort Horn, mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, that, that's not like a pop song. Right. He comes in and he and he does visitation for it on and and Louis Louis Lahave, the engineer, and myself are just sitting there in the dark up at Blavelt Studio. And it's just him and his acoustic guitar, and he's him imitating the various characters in this fort. You know, visitation at Fort Horn. Yeah. And and he's imitating the captain, and he's talking to the captain, and it's just amazing how he did this stuff. You know. I mean, it's like you don't come to Mike Appel if you know if you don't have like hit songs, you know you you know and and whether he didn't know whether he had hit songs or not by what he was doing, I certainly did. I knew they weren't hit songs, but I was blown right out the door. I said, "This is just straight art, Mike. You either gonna carry this guy." and see where it takes you. Or you have to tell them, hey, listen, you're going to have to be more, uh, you're going to have to bridge where you are now to somewhere over here, you know, closer to early Neil Diamond or something like that, solitary man, something like that, to, to be able to have the hits 
as well as have the art. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. You know, I, I, I usually ask my guests and, and, and we'll, I'm going to get back. I want to hear about you growing up, but I, this is a perfect segue. I usually ask my guests, when did you first discover Bruce and what about him spoke to you? And you are kind of, you've, you've started that story. So your perception is totally different than us fans. So I'm going to ask you that question, Mike, do you, I, I'm obviously you remember when you first discovered him found that but did it did it speak to you right away did you go oh my goodness this is something different nope it did not oh because interesting there, because there was a, a part one and a part two okay Bruce came to me November 71 uh, with a fellow by the name of Tinker who was sort of his, his sound man manager whatever you want to call him yeah. Um, and uh, nice guy. And he had good ears. Um, he walks in with Bruce. Bruce sits down at the piano. I'm standing and so is Tinker. We're up at the West Farrell organization where all the partnership stuff actually was created. Yes. And he's sitting on a, on a bench, a stool, and starts to play two songs. One was about uh, a woman who's deaf, dumb, and blind. Uh, and then the other one, I can't remember myself. Okay. Both of them absolutely had no effect on me 
what had an effect on me was the intensity which which, which uh, was how he sung it that, that really enthralled me and got me to sit up and pay attention. And it was a voice, and I'm not given to hearing voices, yes. um, that, that said, in no uncertain terms, this guy's a superstar. And I said, like, I, 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 like, I lifted my head for a second, and I, I almost said, what? Out loud, but I didn't. And Bruce was still singing. And I just said, well, well whatever. You know, and I, I, let it, I let it go. And then when he finished, I said, do you have any more songs? He says, no. I said, well, I said, you want an album deal, right? He says, yeah, I want an album deal. Well, you came up with two songs. So what are we going to do with, about the deficit in songs? So he said, well, he says, I'm going to go back to, you know, San Mateo. And my parents are going to be out there for the Christmas holidays. I'm going to write all the songs. Then when I come back, I'll have the songs together. Okay, can I do that? I said, you sure can. No problem. Looking forward to it. All right. That was the first meeting. Just like that, two songs and out the door. And I totally forgot about them, right? Sure, then because, because, right, I mean, this happens all the time. There are, like, everyone says, oh, I have a book in me. But does everyone have the discipline and the talent to actually follow through, right? So I could certainly see you going, nice kid, good voice. You know, we'll see what, move on. What's next? Exactly right. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. He'll be back or he won't be. Yeah. Or he'll be back with fluff and it won't matter anyway. So um, February, the, the phone rings. The girl at the front desk says, hey, Mike, there's a Bruce Springsteen on the phone. I said, I don't know. I don't know any Bruce Springsteen. She says, he knows you. I said, I don't know a Bruce Springsteen. Wouldn't I tell you if I did? Um, and then he says, he's the guy that came with Tinker. I said, oh, that guy. Okay. So I picked up. And, and, and then he said, hey, I got the songs, blah, blah, blah. I said, can you come up at around five o'clock today? He said, sure. I said, see you then. Boom, phone goes down, that's it. He comes in at five o'clock. I'm sitting there with Jimmy Credicus and Bob Spitz, another writer from our, our little organization there that wrote books on Dylan and the Beatles that were quite successful and, and quite good too. Um, in any case, uh, Bruce opens up his case and plays, uh, I think if I were the priest, the first song. And I said, geez, love it. I said, boy, that's different. I said, well, look, well, go ahead, keep playing. And then he played, the, does this bus stop, and then, you know, Saint in the City. And he played a couple of songs that devastated me, just lyrically devastated me. And I and I said, you know, would you mind singing that song? You know, my that 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 line and that song, uh, you know, uh, with my star studs and duds, just like a Harley and he, you know. So he sings that line again. And I said, that's what I thought you said. I said, man, that's a great bit of symbolism. I mean, Jesus. I mean, wow. I mean, uh, I'm very impressed here. I, I, I am very. So I said, what do you guys think? And they all nodded. They were very impressed also. And Bruce finished up playing a bunch of other songs. And finally, I said, well, okay. I think I speak for myself, for sure, Jimmy and, and even Bob. Um, I said, and uh, we would like to, to try to help you get us, you know, a record deal and go from there. Like, let's, let's try to try to do this. Is that what you're looking to do? He said, yeah, that's just exactly what I'm looking to do. Okay, then leave the rest of us. I'll be in touch with you and then we'll begin the beginning. And that's how it happened. 
the second time, we were blown to smithereens. We were absolutely, there was no mistaking anything. I had no second thoughts for a second. I knew I was leaving the, the Farrell organization as of that meeting. It was just a question of when I could do it. And I actually owed Wes the, the, the right to listen to Bruce, you know, and, and, and I brought it to him. He listened to it and couldn't see a thing, you know, couldn't hear, you know, and we had the tape and everything. He, he, he couldn't hear it for, for you know, the love. He was, he was a guy that was, you know, born to do a certain thing. And he loved that thing. He, rel he, he relished in that, that, that environment. And he was terrific in that environment. I mean, Westboro Boys, which the Beatles, co you know, covered. You know, uh, I mean, I mean, he did a lot of hits. He had, he wrote a load of hits, not just the ones with me, but uh, you know, other ones. And then he, of course, he he uh, published a load of uh, other hits that other writers wrote. He was, he was, he was a good guy, good-looking guy. He was, he was, he was a force to uh, to reckon with if you had to go up against him in business and with his organization mm -hmm. competing with some other organization just like him. Uh, you know, to try to get the next Partridge family, you know, the next yeah. Partridge of, you know, monkeys, what have you. Um, so uh, I, I always I always felt bad that Wes didn't want it, but I knew that Wes didn't get it. Yeah. And he and he he didn't get to Sirloin Baltimore. I played him those things, too. Mm -hmm. Never got it. Just it just was not too, too heavy, too loud. He, he couldn't digest it. He didn't know where it was going. He, Wes was a a guy who was brought up on piano, I was brought up on guitar. So with, for me, it was a little easy to make those, the trans, the, the trans, what should I say? Uh, the transference from where I was with West to those kind of acts, Bruce and uh, certainly Baltimore because of my guitar background. Because yeah. I, and I, I love guitars. I wanted Bruce to have more guitars on his records. But he said, yes. Mike, Mike, that's not me. And I, you know, I had to take that, you know, yeah. And that's another that's another thing. I felt that I would become too overbearing if I stayed on too long with Bruce. Could I have done another album or two? Yes. Okay, I could have. Uh, actually, the next album I wanted Bruce to do was a live album. I didn't want him to have to compete with the songs I'm going to run right away. It right. Too soon and too arduous a task. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I thought, you know, let's let's do let's let's buy Bruce some time to do another great album studio album but let's have something to go to, to capture all this you know the time in newsweek and all the fanville let's capture that too yeah you know and 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 get away with one of our you know um albums that we're you know that we're supposed to do for for, for columbia Records. yeah you know satisfy one of those things uh so in, in any case Nobody see well. What happened is the litigation kind of got 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 got. Yeah. I got caught up. In, I got caught. We all got caught up in that, and so that sort of ended everything. I mean, then I had a lot of a lot of regrets because of of that. Because I, there was a thing, a lot of things I wanted to do with Bruce, which I never got a chance to do, and uh, you know, so those regrets uh, will go. You know. <laughs> yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that. Um, I would like to go back. Just where did you grow up and? Was there a lot of music in your household with your parents when you were growing up? And, and what kind of music did you enjoy as a teenager and as you started, you know, finding adulthood? Well, my mother was a first class singer and would have been Dinah Shaw had she not decided to have more children. OK. And opt out. Opt out. She started in the Brill Building where I started. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. My mother. That's right. She started in the Brill Building. 
My father tells me this when I'm driving down Broadway with him one time. She says, you know, I used to drop your mother off here. She used to take her singing lessons in here. I said, what? He said, yeah, she used to take a singing lesson there. Said, oh, this guy, Ticker Freeman, blah, blah, blah. You know the guy with Dinah Shore today? I said, well, actually, I don't know about it, but I'll I'll look into it, which, of course, I have. Sure. And and he was the guy that used to announce Dinah Shore, Ticker Freeman, Ticker, not Tipper, Ticker. Yeah. And 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 sure enough, that's her story. She, she was a great singer. During the war years, she sung with the Walter Wanger Orchestra. My father could listen to her on the bass in Manchester, New Hampshire. She sung with Walter Wanger. Walter Wanger was the producer of Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. Wow. 20th Century Fox. Okay. Look him up. Walter Wanger. She used to sing, you know, all his songs, you know, in, in his orchestra. And my father could listen to that every day. We lost the, 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 the recordings because that, that particular radio station in Manchester, New Hampshire, had a fire and all those oh. you know, tapes, all, all buried. It was a, it was a heartbreaker. But the, uh, Ticker Freeman has a son who did something on, uh, what the hell was it? Uh, uh, yeah, with the, with the, the, not the BIC. Um, I'm trying to, um, oh, for goodness sakes, the BBC. Right. Some show with the BBC where he's talking about his father, Tip, Ticker Freeman. And I'm, I'm going to try to get a hold of this guy because I got his name recently. And I'm going to see if I can't get a hold and see if his father had kept any logs with yeah. things on my mother. Because that would yeah, be Yeah, that would treasure. be very cool. Yeah, that'd that would be great. Be a very great fair, you know, family heirloom if I could come across those. Yeah. But she used to sing with the Teddy Wilson trio. She used to sing with the uh, uh, Harry, uh, oh, what the heck was his name? That'll come to me. They had, they had okay. the Dipsy Doodle. They had, he had the Dipsy Doodle, My Reverie. Those were big hits back then. Um, it's Harry something, but another two Harrys okay. are coming in my, into my head. I can't, I can't yeah. think which one it is now. But, but I, I remember seeing my mother sing those two songs, you know, Hunting uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Crescent Club, when, when my father was the president of the club at the time. And then my, we would go to the Blue Spruce Inn in Roslyn Harbor to to see my mother sing with the Teddy Wilson Trio. I mean, Teddy Wilson Trio was with you know with Duke Ellington and sure. uh, Louis, Louis Armstrong. I mean, she used to she sing Satin Satin Doll. I used to go up there and watch her sing. She was first class singer. She could sing artsy songs like hey, I can't. In other words, I need some melody to kind of grab onto. And my mother doesn't need any such thing. She's like Frank Sinatra. She take Foggy Day in London Town. You all listen to that song. Yeah. My mother sings it like a bird. She always says, oh, uh, you know, Ticker Freeman sung the song and played the song for me one time. And that was all I needed. I mean, when you hear Foggy Day in London Down, you only have to hear that once and you can sing it. Oh, boy. You're yeah. hot stuff. That's my mother. Wow. I can't sing like that. I kind of round things off to the nearest decimal and hope for the best. Yeah. But not her. Not her. She could really sing, you know. She, she was... Fantastic. But that's how I got started. She got me started. The first record she played for me was Tank Williams, You're Cheating Hard. And uh, he was on the uh, MGM record label, Yellow and Black label, as I recall, looking at that Webcore recording machine in my head right now in front of me. Um, and she 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 bought me my all, all my early records, uh, you know, from Roll Over Beethoven to, uh, you know, Endless Sleep, <laughs> you know, yeah. oddball stuff, you know, for her. You know, but she she was she was great that way. She loved music. She it didn't matter what genre. Just I mean, I mean, Teddy Wilson, right, is considered one of the leading 
you know, pianist yep. of the big band jazz era, right? I yep. mean, that yep. he played with everyone. And so, yep. yeah, so it sounds like, you know, she didn't care. If it was music, she loved it. And then she passed that love to you. No, no question about it. She did. And uh, what I always used to get a kick out of, really, we had a black maid called Mary. And uh, my two sisters, would, would, when I come home from St. John's University, because um, I was a day student uh, uh, and I was a commu- you know, commuting student, mm-hmm. uh, but, I had, but I had access to a car every day. So you know, I had no problem getting yeah. to it from the university. I come home, I'd find them all dancing and singing to you know, Marvin Gaye's you know, Hitchhike Baby. I mean, I mean, hitchhike baby, you know, my mother's dancing with the maid and the, the two, my two sisters in the living room. I mean, that's how my mother was. She had no uh, barriers, certainly because of race or anything like that. She yeah. Didn't give it, she was, the, the, she didn't care about it, who you were, what you were. She just never had any of that, to, you know, never, never, never crossed her mind somehow. And, uh, you know, all, all I can say is, She's the one that really got me started. Took me, bought my first guitar. It was a horrible harmony acoustic guitar. You had mm-hmm. to stand on, had to stand on the strings to make a sound because the the action was so poor on it. Um, but you know, I had to take that guitar and learn how to play. You know, Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight? But uh, I finally convinced her to let me, you know, buy the records I wanted, and I yeah. try to learn off those records, and I'd buy an electric guitar, which I did. And a mm-hmm. black and white Dan Electra was my first electric guitar, and and it was I found I could I could pick up the uh, the uh, riffs off the records pretty good. Not not too not I didn't have too much trouble once my my fingers had uh, calluses on them, and mm-hmm. and I also loved James Burton um, uh, on the Ricky Nelson show. James Burton, you could see him; he would be on the show. You could actually watch him play like guitar solos. Yeah. On, on the show and you'd see the fingering he did i was desperate every you know friday night whatever it was to see ricky sing his new song with with uh, with with james burton playing it mm-hmm. james james burton rocked my soul and i got a great story uh, for you with, please with, with regard to james burton <laughs> we were bruce bruce was 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 about to to to, to do some kind of solo guitar solo on backstreets uh, on the born to run album and I went up to him and I said, you know, I said, you know, wh- why don't we think a little differently? Instead of you trying to come up with something off the top of your head and maybe it becoming being a mediocre solo, why don't we try to create one from scratch that's melodic that won't be forgotten the next day? All right. He said, what do you have in mind? <laughs> He's pretty open about it. What do you have in mind? I said, I want you to come back with me to my office because there's a record I want to play for you, and it's got a guitar player that's just incredible on it. Okay, and I want you to see what I, I want you to see what I'm talking about. Hear what I'm talking about. You go back to the office. I play "Hello, Mary Lou" by uh, Ricky Nelson, written by Gene Pitney, and the the solo comes up. Oh, it's the funkiest little melodic rock and guitar solo by James Burton. And after the song's over, I said. Well, what did you think of the guitar solo? He said, I loved it. I said, me too. I said, do you think between the two of us here, we can just, just uh, I'll yell out to you and I think you did something great. You say, hey, I want to do this. I want to connect this with that. And uh, we'll, we'll try to do the, get through this together. 
If I become too much of a problem, I'll shut up and sit down. Okay. We started. We stayed there about an hour between the two of us, yelling out, shouting out, do this. No, no, go back to the riff you did before that. We get through this whole thing and he says, I got it. I said, good, it's good. I can remember this thing. It's good. This is, this is one of these things that, this is what I was talking about. He did. Now, can you remember it by the time we get from here to the studio again? Because now we're in my office at 75 East 55th Street between Park and Madison, yeah. not 9th and 10th Avenue, okay? So we went back, uh, took a cab on the way back, and uh, he got there. Well, the minute we got in, we recorded, boom. I was so thrilled to get that. So when you listen to that guitar solo, that's how that came about. It wasn't just some guy you know, doing it off the top of his head. And the solo on which song? Backstreets. Backstreets, the solo on back. God, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's amazing. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating, right, how sometimes the sausage is made. Um, <laughs> I, I remember I was at um, the, I was in Nashville. My wife and I were on vacation and we were going through different exhibits and there was one about songwriting. And there was an exhibit, uh, Tom T. Hall was talking about that I love, he says, is, is horrible. He said, because it took me only five minutes to write, it became a billion dollar seller, and people think, oh, that's the way it happens. And he goes, that is the rarity. That is, that does not happen ever. You know, he said, and uh, that that's that's a great story. I I want to get back to Bruce in a minute, but um, how did you end up working at the Brill Building? Which is funny because your mom had been, you know, there, and then you ended up. I mean, because talk about a a historic place. You know, when you think yeah. about all the songwriters and all the great music has come from there. Uh, how did you end up spending time there? Well, uh, it's very simple. I had a band okay. out, on Long, out on Long Island, boys from old Brookville, right? And uh, what happened was uh, we finally wrote a bunch of songs, instrumentals. Okay. And we said, well, we, we want to do demos on these. We want to make these into like records. Well, the only place we could do that was, you know, in Manhattan somewhere. And uh, we found, a, 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 actually, it was Bell Labs. That's what it was called at the time. Not even Bell Sound Series, Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like 1958. And uh, we all went into town, recorded all those songs that we, that we had written. Um, and then I said, well, where are all the record companies where I can sell these masters, hopefully? And uh, they were in places like 1650, 1697 and 1619 Broadway. And that's how I got into those buildings. That's how I started out. Now, when I started out, I, I, I got very lucky in, in certain ways, like um, Dick Jacobs, who was the head of A&R Decca Records at the time. Uh, he had an office in 1697 Broadway. He, uh, Decca Records had, uh, was putting out a lot of country music through their Nashville uh, office. And they were sending uh, all those records to Dick Jacobs in New York to see if he could get them played somewhere on the radio. But there was no country music in, in, in New York at the time. And so he, he, when I walked in, he said, I, I can't use your, your 
instrumental demos. We're not doing that. We're not buying that kind of material. Um, and most of the stuff we buy is in Nashville, and this doesn't qualify for that. He says, but you know, I got all these dumb, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> these records here sitting here. These uh, you know records that are supposed to be given out to promo uh, guys at the record company to take the radio stations, and that's not happening. They're just piling up in a the corner. There was this big pile of Decker albums, you know, Kitty Wells and uh, you know, Tank Thompson. All these guys that, that were on the on the on the on the on the record label, um, and uh, I said, "Geez," and I said, "Well, you know, I'll take them." You know, I'll he said, "Okay, go ahead. You you can come by here, Mike, anytime you want and take them." And he was the guy that did the string lines <laughs> for Buddy Holly on his on his songs at Pythion Studios in Manhattan. He wrote the string lines. Okay, these guys were businessmen, but they weren't just businessmen. You go to Archie uh, Blyer from Cadence Records, okay? Archie Blyer would have acts as different as Link Ray with Rumble and the Cordettes with, you know, yeah. My Boy Lollipop, Lollipop, okay? That's how his, his uh, you know, musical tastes went left or right, up and down. He could, he could do anything. And he had the Everly Brothers. And he had, uh, you know, uh, oh, Andy Williams, okay? Mm. I mean, this guy was all over the map with the acts he had. But the one thing he could do is make hits. He, he, he was an A&R man himself, but he could write charts. He was a businessman, but he could write charts. Now, you don't have any such thing today. There is no, there hasn't been anything like that. I have 20, 30 years. Yeah. So you just don't get it. I mean, I could go in and walk and talk to um, uh, Jerry Moss from A&M Records, okay? I could have a nice conversation on him about, you know, the fact that they passed on Bruce. You know, he said that was particularly painful. He says, right, Mike, right. That, that was particularly painful when I found out that Chuck K passed on Bruce. I said, well, don't worry about it. I said, you know, the truth is what I sent to Chuck it was unfair because, you know, there's no, who could cut those songs? I mean, you know, who's going to cut Visitation yeah. before one? Nobody on the, on the planet Earth but Bruce Springsteen because it's so stylized for him. Right. It's not like you know when uh, Neil Diamond wrote for the for the Monkees, you know. Yes, I'm a exactly. A lot of people could have done "I'm a Believer," but the Monkees did it. Had a big hit with it. So, but Bruce wasn't writing like that. So, you know, a different thing. It was so stylized to him, you couldn't get away with it. So, you know, whatever it was. But there were people just like him all over the place. One of the one of the most unusual things that happened to me in a world of coincidences. And I'm not fil- finished with the Brill Building yet. I know. Either. Okay. No, you don't know. Because okay. I met my wife in the Brill Building. Okay. <gasps> and I met her on the blackout, the night of the blackout, in the Brill Building. All that happened in the Brill Building. My wife would be up at Pier International and Hoagie Carmichael would come out and hit on her and sit on her desk. Can you imagine Hoagie Carmichael? You know, no. the Lake River, Georgia on my mind. He wrote all those songs. He was a giant. He was a, a, a movie star as well as a, a writing hit writer star, too. You know, he was up there. The Rolling Stones would come up to the office there. Buddy Holly's wife worked in the same office my wife did. In the oh, copyright. Wow. All right. Is that, is that just off the wall nuts? Okay, that that's is. That's the real building. Yeah, that is. Are you darn sure? Hey, I... I I ended up working for Hugo and Luigi in the Brill Building. That's why they wrote every Sam Cooke produced, every Sam Cooke hit record Sam mm. ever had. 
and Sam had a load of them. Okay, and they also uh, produced, uh, you know, you know, the lion sleeps tonight. Okay, with the tokens, and they produced uh, little Peggy March. I love him. I love him. Where he goes? They also wrote, "Can't help falling in love with you for Elvis." Okay, not so bad, huh? No, so that's bad. okay. That's that's yeah. pretty decent. Yeah, not bad. And then, of course, I got to, I got in touch because I was already in the building. I got in touch with Lever and Stola, and they were. I don't know whether they were upstairs from us or downstairs, but they were in the building. I went to them with a group called Montana Flintlock, which was like a, a Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young knockoff, which was a shame because they were really good. But uh, but but it was a knockoff. Who was I kidding? And uh, nobody. But they did love them. And, and we, we went and recorded them in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And we used uh, Weldon Myrick, uh, who was the uh, pedal steel guitar player on Neil Young's Heart of Gold song. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he was wonderful, a wonderful way of where they record down there. And the, 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 the shorthand they use is terrific when you first are exposed to it down there. They, 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 they know what, what they, know, they know all the chords, you know, and they you play your chords one through, and they just keep writing and writing. Right. Say, so, okay, got it. You know, and I'm not used to that. I'm used to, well, look, look, let me go over it again. Make sure you know, I got it. My got it. And sure enough, they, 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 they do that shorthand really works well, but, uh, nothing ever happened there because the partners, Lieber Lee Stoller's partners in Nashville, got into some kind of problem with how they wanted to sell the record and who they wanted to record yeah. company. They wanted to sell their recording studios down there, and it became a whole fiasco. And I ended up with my album <laughs> and with no place for it to go, and it couldn't go anywhere because they were still fighting, it and I didn't know whether I was going to end up having to give it back to them after I gave it to somebody else. So I just let it die, and it did die finally forever. Mm. But um, yes, so I, I I did get into the Burrow Building and I and I got to know a lot of people at Burrow Building, and it was fortuitous for me. But I also got to know people in 1650. Like um, I have this uh, musical that I've been working on for you know close to 20 years. Yeah. And uh, and I'm, I'm I'm down to the last to the last strokes on it, thank God. Uh, but I I realized that, that I didn't know anything about making Broadway musicals. And that I had to learn the entire craft from writing it, writing the songs for it. And I won't bore you to tears with all the other things you have to learn if you want to go to Broadway for real. Um, but I, uh, I I was writing this song about Hank Williams Sr., Hank's Last Shot, it was called. And uh, it was about his life, basically. Sure. And sure. I had to do some research on it. So I went to the library, got a, uh, you know, uh, some, some, some magazines out that had some interviews with uh, Hank Williams Sr. One of them was by Ralph Gleason. Ralph Gleason was kind of like this guy that started Rolling Stone back in the day. He started, you know, the Monterey Jazz Festival. He helped Lenny Bruce with his legal bills, you know, when he was in trouble with the law, you know, for cursing, you know, on his live shows and all that kind of stuff. So he was a real maverick and, 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 and a real player and a real, you know, personality to contend with is Ralph Gleason character. And um, I think he was even responsible for the like, first FM station in, uh, in California, KSAN Radio in San Francisco. So, uh, uh, you know, a force to reckon with. I read this, this article and he's interviewing Wes, uh, um, Hank Williams. And he says, Hank, do you have any favorite singers? And he says, yeah, Bill Darnell. And I said to myself, I wonder if that's the same Bill Darnell that I sold my little instrumental song to 
to his portrait records, you know, in 1650, was that the same Bill Dodd? Could that ever be the same guy? So I go ahead and take a, uh, go, go onto the internet and look up Bill Darnell. The minute I see the first picture come up, I said, that's him. That's it. So here I am uh, writing a song about, you know, Hank Williams Sr. And he asked them the question about who's your favorite singer. And it's the guy who signed me in the bro building. It's like, give me a break. That's a real wild thing. The guy became a good friend of mine, Bill Darnell. Yeah, yeah. Symmetry, like, uh, you know, you just say, where is that? Well, you know, happenstance. I don't know if it's happenstance. I think that these things in my particular life are the things that keep me going because it's like, Mike, there's a divine hand, you know, guiding you just to don't argue too much and don't, uh, and don't, don't be too quick to, to judge because that's one of my, if I have a flaw, if, if I have flaws, one of them is, uh, you know, uh, that I'm judgmental. Quick. Okay. I, I quickly judge, make a judgment about something or somebody. And uh, then I find out later, where the hell were you at? You were completely wrong. Completely wrong. You know what you're talking about. You yeah. Know, you got to you got to cut that out. So you know these are the things you do as you, as, you, as of course as you get older, you get you get on your case a little bit more because you you, you don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, and uh, you want to say say oh all right, I'm getting better. You know I'm, I'm getting better. So Absolutely. before I before I before I pass away here. I want to make sure that I get to a lot of things that I haven't gotten to, which I am in the process of doing. I'm going to pause here, um, come back tomorrow for the second half of my interview with Mike. Uh, we talk a little bit about Born to Run. We talk about um, the divorce, as he called it, and his future plans. So um, see you tomorrow. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. We have a website, www.setlessingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Bruce shirts as well as a Merry Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 